Good morning, everyone. Thank you for joining us for this timely update. Um, we just want to start by introducing ourselves and then we're going to hop off camera and pull up our PowerPoint so that you guys can focus on the content. Um, so I'm Claire Grandison. I'm an attorney at Community Legal Services and I focus on um, our SSI unit practice as well as our youth justice project. Hi everyone, my name is Caitlin Greitas. I'm also a staff attorney at Community Legal Services. I practice in our SSI unit as well as our Health and Independence unit, which focuses on um, access to public benefits, including long-term care um, for individuals with disabilities and older adults. And I think I'm gonna get us started today. Um, we're gonna go off camera so that everyone can see our PowerPoint, but we didn't wanna just be faceless or not faceless, just voiceless blobs that no one could see. <laughs> so this training is sort of covering both the basics of overpayments, which come up constantly in, um, in SSI, as well as the intersection with pandemic-related assistance, which is now um, something that we've been experiencing for well over a year, but we're finding is impacting individuals' benefits, and Social Security has recently um, updated their policies and guidance on this issue. So today we're gonna kind of cover three things, just the basics of overpayments for SSI, what those are, how they work, how you can try to avoid them. Then we're gonna delve a little bit more in depth into how pandemic related assistance intersects with SSI and overpayments. And finally, we'll do a lot of practice tips on how you can address overpayments and the different types that come up and we have some um, helpful templates, I think, some samples that you can use, um, that we use all the time when addressing these with your local social security offices. So an overpayment, I thought was kind of a funny term when I started practicing in um, the social security world. Basically, when social security pays someone who is receiving SSI or social security disability, but for today we're focusing on SSI, too many benefits. And when they discover that they paid them too many benefits, either because the person wasn't eligible or it can be due to Social Security's um, mistake or just that it was too much in benefits, Social Security will let the claimant know and will send them a notice saying, you were overpaid, we need that money back. So we typically see overpayments um, sort of two ways in terms of how you identify them. Like I mentioned, Social Security sometimes just straight up sends a notice, and that's how a claimant learns that they are um, that they're having an overpayment taken out. We will go through some of the requirements of how overpayments are processed and and claimants' rights. So there does need to be a notice before anything happens. But in terms of practice and how you might see these come up, a notice would be probably one of the most common ways. They are a little confusing and dense. So sometimes claimants aren't quite clear on what it, what it means. The other way that it can happen is if someone tells you that about 10%, exactly 10%, which now is about $79 in 2021, is being withheld from an SSI check. That is sort of the, the default generally for SSI recipients. If there is no um, payment plan, Social Security will start withholding that much. And that is the maximum that they can withhold from a SSI check is the 10%. But given the low amount that SSI provides in vital income, 10% is a lot. So 
two ways you can identify that someone has an overpayment. Overpayments happen a variety of ways. I think probably the most common ones that we see are the two that are highlighted at the top. So Social Security has really um, complex but also very um, strict rules on how someone who's receiving SSI reports their income and any resources that they have. If income is received and not reported to Social Security, that can definitely cause an overpayment because it factors into how Social Security calculates benefits. If someone um, either inherits or receives a resource or obtains one and does not report it to Social Security and they then discover it, that can put you over the resource limit. Many people, um, I think nationwide, are learning that Social Security is using different data matching systems. I think there's ones called Numadent and um, it's through LexisNexis. I've heard of a couple different terms that are used to describe these. But because of this, they're able to match property records and other um, systems that discover assets that people have. Sometimes this information can be erroneous or incomplete, but it can cause hits that show that somebody who is receiving SSI has more than the, um, the asset limit, more than the, that $2,000 for a single person or $3,000 for a married couple. Other ways can be marriage, which we know um, there's a marriage penalty for individuals receiving SSI. You don't receive the same amount of benefits if you are married. And so if the marriage, um, Social Security hasn't counted for that, that can cause an overpayment. In-kind support and maintenance, which I always call ISM, but I know Social Security calls ISM. <laughs> um, so any um, uh, food or shelter that is provided to somebody who is on SSI, either coming from inside their household or outside their household. It's a very, very complex area that we're not going to get into much today because it's really its own topic. But Social Security does count that type of assistance as unearned income, and they reduce benefits accordingly. And so that also can cause overpayments. If you are outside of the United States, and this is continental U.S., including um, outside of, I guess not, I shouldn't say continental, outside of the 50 U.S. states <laughs> for more than 30 days, that is considered um, making you ineligible for SSI. And even though Puerto Rico is part of the United States as a commonwealth, they um, do, as a territory, I mean, they do consider that to be outside. If you are institutionalized for more than 30 days, nursing home, prison, hospital, again, this can cause an overpayment because you are not eligible for SSI. And the lag in reporting for these things is really what usually I think we see causing the overpayment because sometimes when someone is hospitalized or incarcerated, the first thing that happens isn't reporting to Social Security. But when it is reported, then Social Security realize that, realizes they have paid benefits for which the claimant was not eligible. And the last way you can have um, an overpayment is if when someone is receiving SSI and they are ceased, their benefits are ceased. Um, this happens either during continuing disability reviews or age 18 redeterminations, and they elect to have statutory benefit continuation during the pendency of their appeal and are found no longer eligible. The benefits that they receive from when they were ceased until they receive that unfavorable decision at the end of the appeal, it does need to be the end of the appeal, which is something we'll talk about a little bit more, um, that can be an overpayment. Those are overpayments which actually are among the um, 
I'd say easier to address in that there's really good support in the palms for how these can be waived. But these are just sort of how overpayments can originate. Um, which is, oh, here it is, the practice tip that I just sort of highlighted. So you are allowed under social security's rules and regulations to receive continuing benefits when you appeal um, a medical cessation. Social security says, we think you're no longer disabled. You're not eligible for benefits. The claimant says, I think I am. And they pursue the appeal. When the appeal is made in good faith um, and they are found to by social security to no longer be eligible based on their medical condition, there can be a waiver because this was a good faith appeal. Good faith appeals generally just means that the person cooperates um, with social security. By cooperation, generally that entails um, responding to social security's calls or um, requests for information. If they schedule a consultative exam, um, attending that or responding to that, just in, in no way sort of preventing presenting roadblocks to the development of the case. Um, so generally a pretty easy, easy bar to reach. So this is the citation for this in the POMS, the SI 02260.007. We will probably refer a couple times to the POMS during the course of this training, which is the Program Operation Manual, and I always forget what the S is, either support or series, um, but basically, Social Security's internal rules easily found online. Um, you can Google just POMS and then what you're looking for. And it's helpful to always look around in there if you're hoping that there might be something that can help your client. There could be. And Social Security often doesn't know their own rules. So keep these handy. Basically, you can cite that and help your client get the overpayment waived when they have a failed continuing disability review or age 18 redetermination. And the next practice tip we have is that sort of the best way for anyone to avoid overpayments is reporting everything they can to social security as soon as it happens. The rules are generally that you have to report by I think the 10th day of the next month after the change happens. Um, the POM specifies this for depending what the change is, but it's a good idea to report it as soon as possible. This is obviously really hard to do. It is very onerous on claimants. Um, I think especially with wages from a job, when someone works irregular hours or they have overtime, um, we see working parents very frequently experience overpayments for their children who are on benefits because of this. There are a number of ways that you can report wages to Social Security. You can fax um, your, your pay stubs. You can drop them off at the local office. Drop boxes are open. I know at least in the Philadelphia region during business hours, but please keep copies of everything you have or make sure you have the original. Um, and as Jacob has just, um, Jacob Eden, who is an expert on SSI uh, pointed out, even when things are reported, Social Security does not often act timely, which causes the overpayment to happen. What I advise is to always have your clients note somewhere where they can remember when they reported the change so that if Social Security does hit them with an overpayment, they can say, I provided the documentation on this date and time. When it's Social Security's failure to process it and the person can't pay it back, as we'll later go through, that's really good grounds for a waiver. So. Having the documentation, knowing when you provided it to Social Security and in what form, 
really, really super helpful. Definitely hard to do because it's usually, um, if you are meeting a client who has this issue and you're looking back at what happened and this already didn't happen, but when you're developing an overpayment case, it's helpful to go through that. When they when they communicated this to Social Security, how they did so. Um, there's also an app that they can that people can use to report their wages. It used to be terrible. I've heard it's gotten a little bit better. Um, hopefully, there'll be more ways to report using technology soon. And these are other things that must be reported. Um, really, really key thing, life insurance policies with cash surrender value. I see these all the time. I do a lot of cases for older adults and um, policies continue to accumulate cash surrender value over the course of the policy for whole life. And if someone is retaining a policy, especially to go towards their burial, um, this can be a big issue that comes up with, um, with SSI because while the policy may not have been over the asset limit when the person obtained it, it can grow over that and make them ineligible for SSI. So something to really make sure your clients are aware of and watching. And windfalls of any type, any changes, basically anything that could be income or a resource, which is anything you that you can use to, um, to really use for food, shelter, assistance, needs to be reported. And that's um, sort of the end of our general section. I'm going to pass it over to Claire to dive into pandemic-related assistance. Thanks, Kate. And if anybody has questions about that first section, please feel free to pop them into the Q&A. And since I am sharing my screen, I'm going to count on Kelly and Kate to interrupt me if there's a question that I miss. So when Kate and I were thinking about doing this presentation, we thought there could be some overpayments from stimulus checks and from the child tax credit payments, little did we know that Social Security would release in July of 2021 two emergency messages, um, which are linked on this slide, changing how almost all pandemic-related assistance is counted for purposes of SSI. So if you take nothing else away from this training, I hope it is the citation to these two emergency messages. And you can access these just by clicking on the links in the PowerPoint. We included PDFs in the presentation materials, um, or you can just Google the citation and pull them up. Um, but these are really, really detailed, really important resources to be referencing when working with clients who are receiving pandemic-related assistance and experiencing issues with their SSI benefits. And um, we are gonna get into all of the types of stimulus payments and uh, assistance that is included in pandemic assistance very shortly. So thanks for that question. Um, and just so you guys know what these cover, the first EM-20014 revision three is where you wanna go if you wanna just see social security's list of government assistance and how they are categorizing it. So it goes, it just has a huge chart which goes through all the different types of government assistance that have been issued during the pandemic and how social security is treating it. And then the second EM21050 is sort of the step-by-step -step instructions for how social security is supposed to handle that assistance when they are evaluating it as income, or as resources for purposes of SSI. So that's a great resource to go to 
if you're contacting social security and trying to get to follow them to follow their own rules. Um, so please uh, read these and reference them often. And we're gonna get into a little bit of detail about what is included in them. So like I mentioned, um, this first one, EM20014 has a chart. You'll notice it says revision three. So it's already been updated. It's going to continue to be updated as new types of assistance come out. So if you have any questions, is this assistance included as pandemic related disaster assistance? This is the place you want to check. And to the question that was just asked, that chart, I'm just highlighting a couple of examples. These are some of the most common types of assistance that we have seen our clients receive. So Social Security is counting economic impact payments or stimulus checks as pandemic-related disaster assistance. And I'm gonna talk in just a minute about what pandemic-related disaster assistance means for SSI and why that designation is important. They are also including all regular and pandemic unemployment received during the pandemic period. And this was a huge, huge update because I am not an unemployment attorney. So I don't understand quite all the differences between the different types of unemployment benefits. And now I don't have to, because as long as it is some type of unemployment benefit that was received from March, 2020, before the end of the pandemic period, it counts as pandemic-related disaster assistance. And the good news is the end of the pandemic period doesn't exist yet. And so unemployment benefits from March 2020 to now are all pandemic-related disaster assistance for purposes of SSI benefits. Yes, that includes PUA. And um, there is, what's important to know in this chart is um, there are different, these types of assistance are excluded so long as the pandemic period is ongoing. There is one pandemic period generally, and there's a separate pandemic period for unemployment benefits. And that period varies by state. So in other states, just to keep things interesting for social security, that unemployment pandemic period has ended, but in Pennsylvania, it has not. So all pandemic um, unemployment, all unemployment that is received is still excluded as pandemic-related disaster assistance. Um, another example is emergency rental assistance. And there are a whole lot more examples in that chart that I encourage you to take a look at. Um, that chart will also tell you what might be classified as pandemic-related assistance that does not meet criteria for disaster assistance. And that is the designation that really matters. It doesn't matter if it came from legislation that is in some way associated with the pandemic. What matters is whether social security has designated it as disaster assistance or not. So some of your clients might have gotten the temporary expansion of the child tax credit. That is not designated as pandemic related disaster assistance, but it might still be excluded under other rules, which we'll talk about in just a second. Um, some of your clients who are working might have gotten hazard pay. That is not counted as disaster assistance. And we don't always know why social security counted one thing as disaster assistance and not another thing. So I, I direct you back to the chart if you have questions about what is counted in what category. And 
Um, just to say, this is all changing. There are new types of assistance that might be added. And I'm really glad that we are here as a group on the front line serving clients together because we're learning about this every day. So if folks have experiences to bring to the table, um, clients they've been working with who have struggled or encountered issues with social security based on one type of assistance or another, I really value your expertise and your input as we go through this presentation. So please don't hesitate to jump in. Um, I, someone is asking what is considered hazard pay. I honestly don't know how to answer that question. I'm just reporting back on the categories that social security has put into their chart. Um, so I Claire, don't have any, yeah, oh, go ahead. Claire, I think it's that, um, for a lot of jobs that were sort of frontline or essential workers, there were sort of not bonuses, but increases in their regular hourly rate or salary at the beginning of the pandemic due to the risks that were associated with working. And the state of Pennsylvania did a lot of work around this. I am also not an employment learning attorney, so I don't know much around that, but it's just to say that it's, while it is related to the pandemic as a form of assistance, it is not considered to be in any way um, excludable for social security. So it's, I, I can't think of what you'd really call it, but I know we saw with a lot of, um, uh, I think sanitation workers, grocery store workers, um, some medical professionals and hospitals, things like that. Awesome, thanks. And so you might be wondering, okay, so we now know that social security has a chart telling us what is pandemic related disaster assistance and what is not. Um, and what do we do with that information? So that is important because if something is classified as pandemic related disaster assistance specifically, it does not count as income or resources for purposes of SSI benefits. And there is no time limit on that. So our clients can keep these benefits in their accounts and they will not be counted towards the $2,000 resource limit for an individual, the $3,000 resource limit for a couple. They also won't be counted as income in the month that they were received. Now, I mentioned that some of the types of assistance on that chart are not classified as disaster assistance, but they might still be excluded for other reasons. So for example, the child tax credit payments are not disaster assistance. They're not gonna be excluded from resources indefinitely, but they are excluded as from resources for 12 months under a different social security rule because they are classified as advanced tax credits. So those CTC payments are still excluded from income and they don't count as a resource for 12 months. Claire, we have a question about um, pandemic-related assistance in SGA. I don't know if you want to handle that now or later. Um, sure. I'll it, take sorry, it just says, I'm assuming pandemic-related assistance would be honored as long as you don't go over SGA. Um, so there's not a specific cap on the amount that would be excluded. All unemployment benefits received during the pandemic period are excluded from income and from resources. So the, S, the SGA cap wouldn't, there is no cap, which is great.
Claire, this is Kelly. If I could just interrupt for a second, I need to launch the first of the CLE poll boxes. So attorneys um, watching the session, you should see a pop-up box on your screen right now. You can click one or the other option. Either one will count. Um, this will be up for two minutes. And this is the first of two of poll boxes. And please feel free to continue. Thank you. Thanks, Kelly. And Jacob Edom helpfully pointed out also that just in general, unemployment benefits don't count towards SGA, even outside the scope of this. Um, but for this rule, like I said, it's, it's any unemployment benefit um, received during the pandemic period is excluded. Okay. So now that we know what pandemic related disaster assistance is and that it's excluded as income and resources, we wanted to move to the other emergency message 21050 to give you some insight into how social security is supposed to be processing this. And this is a pretty recent policy change. So we have some limited examples so far, but this is, this is what the rule says. First, Social Security is supposed to ask the SSI recipient if they received pandemic-related disaster assistance. Um, I would add that you as a representative can also alert Social Security to the fact that an SSI recipient who you represent has received pandemic-related disaster assistance if it's causing um, problems in their, in their case for some reason, either because they've been charged an overpayment, denied benefits, had an change in their payment amount because that income was improperly counted. The second step is social security is supposed to document the person's reasonable allegations about who received the income, how much they received, the months the income was received, and then they are supposed to exclude from income all of that pandemic related disaster assistance from March, 2020 to the end of the pandemic period. And again, the pandemic period is defined in a chart in this rule. Social security is only supposed to request evidence if the individual's allegation is not reasonable or a fraud is suspected. Now, reading this rule, you might wonder as I did, what is a reasonable allegation? And they basically tell their staff to use their best judgment when assessing the reasonableness of a person's allegation. Um, and they can request additional documentation if they suspect fraud or if they have reason to suspect the person's allegation. They go on in this rule to provide an example, which basically says, is the person alleging an amount of money that's consistent with what we know about disaster-related assistance payments? So for example, if I am married and I have a child and I say, I got $4,200 for my stimulus check in April. That's consistent with what we know about the law because it's $1,400 for each person. Hopefully I did my math correctly. And if they see that my bank account went up that month, then they're gonna say, okay, that seems reasonable. If I said I got $8,400, then they might have some questions and they would ask some follow-up questions. Um, but we don't have a lot of information outside of that example about how they're assessing what is reasonable or not. 
Um, I've already discussed what is the end of the pandemic period and I, um, the chart can be found in this rule just to emphasize again that the pandemic period um, might be different for unemployment benefits um, and for other pandemic related disaster assistance. It might vary by state. So it's just important to check that chart if you have questions about when the pandemic period ends. Now, they also in their rule go through how Social Security is supposed to consider pandemic-related disaster assistance as a resource. Um, so we just went through how they exclude it as income, and then their rule goes on to say that they are supposed to exclude from resources all retained pandemic-related disaster assistance um, that they received during the pandemic period, again, based on the individual's reasonable allegation. So once the person has told Social Security, hey, I got this much for a stimulus check, Social Security is then going to try to figure out how much they kept in their account after the end of that month. And they do that through this process, which is again outlined in EM 21050. First, they ask how much of the assistance was retained. And then for all months where excess resources are involved, Social Security is supposed to compare the account balance, the account balance to the amount the person says they got for pandemic related assistance. And if that matches, they're just supposed to exclude all that money, um, the pandemic related disaster assistance from resources. If the allegations don't match what Social Security is seeing in the account, Social Security is supposed to contact the person, clarify their allegations, and they may request documentation. Now, as I mentioned, that pandemic-related disaster assistance is excluded indefinitely. I wanna just highlight, it says that Social Security can request documentation. The rule also says that if your client is planning to hold on to that um, assistance over the long term, they should save documentation of the disaster assistance because Social Security may request it for individuals who continue to save it long-term. I mean, and if you think about it, this is gonna be really difficult for social security to figure out. Again, going back to my example of me being married with a child, if I got $4,200 for the economic impact payment this spring and I don't spend any of that, I am basically allowed to not only have the $3,000 resource limit for a couple, plus the 4,200. So my resource limit is basically $7,200 now because I'm allowed to keep that $4,200 indefinitely. And they, so say in like two years, if I still have that money, social security might ask me for proof that that truly is pandemic related assistance. So while the rule says that documentation shouldn't be required, it's a good idea to advise your client to hold on to proof that that's um, an economic impact payment, be that their tax return because they claimed it later on, the IRS letter, some documentation that they did receive that additional funds, just in case. We don't know, we don't have a good sense yet. It hasn't been long enough how often Social Security is going to ask for that, so better to be safe than sorry. And even if the resource doesn't fall under that disaster assistance designation, like I mentioned before, there are other options. 
for how it could be excluded. And we just wanted to give you those citations in case this other assistance comes up in your cases. So we provided the POM citation, like Kate mentioned, this is basically like the rules that the field office staff look at every day when they're processing cases. So that citation is POMS SI 01130.676 that says that federal tax refunds and advanced tax credits are excluded for 12 months. Another common exclusion is retroactive benefits. So say your client applies for SSI, you have to go through some appeal process and they're found eligible back to their application date they could be receiving several thousand dollars in retroactive benefits. And it can be hard to spend all that right away to get back below the resource limit, depending on how much it is. So those retroactive benefits are excluded for, from resources for nine months and the POM citation is here as well in case that comes up in a case for you. So we just talked about a pretty significant change in how Social Security is counting income and resources for a whole lot of SSI benefits, uh, for a lot of SSI recipients. So I don't know about you, but I think most, if not all of my clients got a stimulus payment, a child tax credit payment, some sort of unemployment payment. And there are a whole lot of other assistance types that are included in these charts that are now excluded. So there might be people who applied for SSI benefits who were denied because Social Security didn't know back in April of 2020 that all unemployment benefits were going to be excluded from income and resources. They now have a year, almost a year and a half of cases to go through where these new income and resource exclusions apply. Um, Granted, some of them, you know, they were aware of some of them before, but some of these are, are pretty new. Um, so some people might be newly eligible for benefits. Other people might be underpaid because maybe Social Security reduced their SSI benefits based on income that actually should have been excluded. Social Security has said that when they do not need any information, they will, they, if they have everything they already need in their records, they will restore SSI payments, issue any underpayments, and mail a letter explaining the change to the most recent address on record and to any representative and rep payee. I would love to have faith in Social Security's ability to do this on a large scale, but I think that we are all going to have to mobilize here. And if you are working with clients who you think were denied benefits or underpaid benefits, because of any of this pandemic-related disaster assistance, I encourage you to proactively reach out to Social Security. Um, they say that if they need more information, they're going to either take a claim or to um, issue an underpayment. They will send a letter to the person saying they need to speak with the person by phone. Um, but if it's, you know, it's been a significant period of time, it, so it's important for your client to contact Social Security if their address has changed. Um, and they can also reach out to Social Security right away before receiving a letter if they think that this rule has impacted them at all. Kind of uh, linking the two topics that we're here to discuss today, a lot of this pandemic-related disaster assistance has caused erroneous overpayments. 
We have seen these notices, for example, because Social Security has failed to investigate whether excess resources in a bank account are due to retain pandemic-related disaster assistance. And we started to see this this spring, about a year after the um, stimulus, the first stimulus payment went out because Social Security said, okay, well, it's been 12 months since you got that stimulus check and you're still over the resource limit when in reality, people had received subsequent stimulus payments as well. And they have not always identified those payments before telling somebody that they've been over the resource limit. There was also this delayed policy clarification that we just went through that unemployment benefits are exempt from income and resources for the pandemic period. This was just decided in July of 2021, even though people have been receiving unemployment benefits since that are excluded since March of 2020. So it's a very large retroactive period that Social Security now has to correct. Um, now that we've gone through a lot of the rules, I want to walk you through a case that I had, um, which has obviously been changed to, to be made anonymous, but this is, uh, this is a real example. So my client, Amir, is 16 years old. His mother got an overpayment notice because hopefully folks know that for minor SSI recipients, the parents or guardians income is deemed to the child. So a certain portion of the parental income is counted as the child's income. And his mom got that overpayment notice because Amir was over the resource limit from March 2020 through July 2021. And so that time period um, is significant. And I, I think the chat is open. So if folks don't mind just typing into the chat, if you got an, overpay an overpayment notice from March 2020 to July 2021, are there any red flags when you see that time period? Anything that jumps out to you that are based on what we've been talking about today or just what you know about overpayments and the resource limit in general? <laughs> yes, pandemic assistance, stimulus, CTC. So folks are noticing that the time period is significant, that it started in March of 2020. Is there anything that we want to flag? This is not something that we've covered today, but anything that we want to flag about the number of months involved in this overpayment notice? Any thoughts on someone being over the resource limit from March 2020 to July 2021? Well, so there's, it's concerning. Um, when I saw this notice, I got very, very nervous. I, exactly. So, so um, someone just pointed out that you have 12 months to spend down. Well, so you have 12 months to spend on pandemic assistance. Yes. If it's, um, so say that was their tax return and it was, um, or the child tax credit or something that was falling under that 12 month limit. 
um, that would be significant because it would be excluded for 12 months. So say that she had gotten a really large tax return in March of 2020, that would actually be excluded for the full 12 month period. The other thing that's significant here is they're over the resource limit for 12 months, which actually means that they could be ineligible for SSI. They could be terminated from the program because if someone's over the resource limit for 12 months or more, they can actually be terminated as an SSI recipient. So this went from a simple overpayment notice that has to be dealt with as an overpayment to a possible termination from the program. And they said that my client's payment amount was going to be reduced to zero. He was not going to be eligible for SSI anymore. So it was very, very important that we addressed this resource issue for him. And what information would we need from Amir's mom before we decide how we wanna to respond to this overpayment notice? So we've made some guesses about why they could be over the resource limit, but what other questions would we have or information would we need before we would decide, okay, this is a case I can take. I have some merit to challenge this overpayment notice. So Sarah's suggesting how much did they get in terms of stimulus payments? Did she get any unemployment during the pandemic? Yes, so great questions. We're going to start to inquire, um, yep, stimulus payment statement. What kind of income did you get during these months that you were over the resource limit? We're trying to ask as many questions as we can to figure out what can we get excluded from this resource calculation that pushed them over the limit. So great suggestions. Bank statements, also a really good idea because the bank statements will show us what was deposited into the account. We can see when you get a bank statement, it's, it says if it comes from the IRS. So it's um, a really easy way to see what could potentially be excluded. So I talk to Amir's mom and I get this information. I see that she got a tax refund in March, which could be the initial thing that pushed her over if they didn't have that categorized correctly. Then I see her, her economic impact payments, her stimulus checks were paid at kind of funky times for different reasons. But so she got one in April, she got in January, and then she got another tax return the following July. Um, and then her child tax credit payments begin. And so let's, we just talked through how different types of assistance are categorized. Which ones do you think would be excluded forever? Would, would be categorized as pandemic-related disaster assistance and would not count towards the resource limit at all? Any ideas you have, just throw them into the chat. Yes, the EIP, exactly. And then which ones would be excluded um, for 12 months because they are not pandemic-related disaster assistance, but they are still excluded. I mean, kind of answered that question because it's everything else. <laughs> Thank you, Sarah. Yes, it's all the rest. It's the tax refunds and the child tax credit payment. Although they're not excluded permanently as disaster-related assistance, they're still excluded. So I get this information from Amir's mom. Uh, thank you, Georgina. Yes, exactly, the CTC and the tax refund. And so now that we know more about Amir and his mom's resources, 
how will we respond to the overpayment notice? Do we think that we have, I didn't obviously tell you the amount that they were over the resource limit, but let's just assume now that we know these things are excluded, that if they had been properly excluded, they would be back below the resource limit. Um, and so knowing that we have good grounds to challenge the overpayment, um, we've kind of already answered these questions. Do you need to prepare any documentation for SSA? And if so, what will you likely need? So people have pointed out, we might need some bank statements. We might need a copy of our tax returns. Might need proof that she got her stimulus payments, that she got um, her child tax credit payments. So that's documentation that we would probably want to have on hand just in case we needed it. Um, and in terms of how to respond to the overpayment notice, we're going to get into that in a little bit. So we haven't gone over this information yet, but does anybody have any ideas for how you might want to respond to the overpayment notice now that you have some information that a lot of those resources that push them over the limit should have actually been excluded. Anyone know the mechanism that you would use to respond? And it's fair if you don't, because we haven't actually talked about it yet. Yeah, Lily and Sarah, great idea. Ask for reconsideration. Great idea. Um, and that's exactly what I did. <laughs> so when your client receives an overpayment notice and has received pandemic-related disaster assistance, we're going to get into a whole lot more detail about how to respond to overpayments in just a second. But in, in this situation, um, you want to file a request for reconsideration and prompt Social Security to follow the instructions in EM 21050. I put contact Social Security slash file a request for reconsideration because you know, every once in a while when there's a payment issue, it just depends on your relationship with Social Security. Do you have a friendly person at the office who you can say, hey, I think you guys got this wrong. And did you even ask her what was received as pandemic related disaster assistance? You know, every once in a while, they'll just fix the problem without you needing to formally file an appeal. But you better put that appeal deadline on your calendar and not miss it in case they don't resolve it by then. And I always prefer just to file a request for reconsideration just to be on the safe side. There are other benefits to filing a request for reconsideration, which is just the social security word for filing an appeal that we're going to talk about in a minute. Um, so that's you know, highly recommended. Um, but it, you know, might not always be the fastest route. And then, like we talked about, in addition to filing an appeal, Documentation should not be necessary based on the way that Social Security wrote their guidance, unless the allegations are unreasonable, but it's always good to gather and submit documents if you've got them. It just makes it a little bit easier. Um, so it listed there a lot of the documentation that we've already talked about. And um, with that, I'm going to pass it back over to Kate to talk more about responses to overpayments if folks have more questions please feel free to put them in the chat. Thanks, Claire. So we're gonna kind of get back to the nitty gritty of how to handle overpayments based on everything that we've talked about and some sort of case examples and best practices. 
as I was kind of reminded at the beginning of the training by Jacob Eden, um, it's really important for us to talk about what's supposed to happen versus what social security often does. Because anyone who's been practicing before the social security administration for any length of time knows that those are not the same. And so it's good to know what the rules say they must do and what they do and when you can make us think about it and how to do that. So your client gets an overpayment notice for any of the multitude of reasons that we talked about at the beginning. There's um, two options and you can do either or or both. And there's reasons to, um, to choose any of those routes, which we're gonna talk about. The first level of appeal for an overpayment or for really any um, sort of non-disability related matter that impacts someone's eligibility for social security um, is a request for reconsideration. This is an appeal. So you're asking social security to look at the case again. You're saying, I think you were wrong. And the best time to use this is when you think social security did make a mistake. And social security makes mistakes all the time. So you do wanna look over the information that you're getting from your client and do a little bit of research to see if they were correct in how they calculated the overpayment and the existence of it altogether. As with most things for social security, you have 65 days to appeal. That's 60 days plus five from the date of the notice for mailing. Um, so you want to, to do that within that timeline, always calendar that, that's my recommendation because the 60 days is almost, 65 days is kind of long enough to be too far in the future. The other option when you have an overpayment is to request waiver. By waiving, you're asking social security to forgive the overpayment and make it so that the claimant does not have to pay it back. This is appropriate when um, there is some sort of concession or agreement that an overpayment exists, but two things are met. One, the claimant was not at fault in causing the overpayment, and two, they cannot afford to pay it back. If someone is currently receiving SSI, the second part is presumed that you can't pay it back because SSI has such, um, such low draconian um, income limits and resource limits. But it still needs to be sort of just said at least, um, even though it's easier to fill out the form when you're on SSI, as I'll explain. The good thing about a waiver for overpayment is it can be requested at any time. You don't need to do it within the 65 days. Um, but it's important to note, as we have the asterisks at the bottom, that until you submit either a request for reconsideration or, um, or an over request for an over or waiver, Social Security can collect on the, um, the overpayment. Generally, this will happen when someone is receiving SSI. This is when they'll start withholding that 10% automatically. Once a request for reconsideration or a request for a waiver have been submitted, they are supposed to stop. You might see this not happen if they don't process it timely. So you always want to make sure that um, you know when and how this was submitted and that if it's not, if Social, Secur Social Security is withholding, that you let them know that they're not supposed to do that because it was submitted. There is a risk that if somebody is not receiving um, Social SSI, but say they are working or um, otherwise have income, 
Social Security could try to collect it through wage garnishment, treasury offset. It kind of goes on a whole rabbit hole. Um, we're not going to get into that, but it is a reason to not ignore an overpayment and to always submit um, a request for a waiver if, even if there is a true overpayment and someone cannot afford to pay it back, that you want Social Security to not um, send this to wage garnishment or treasury offset. And you can do both. That's the great thing about this, either or or both. Hey, we have a question. What if Social Security tells you that they cannot send you their calculations? What would you do? <laughs> so this has kind of come up recently in that the no some notices have really like a more detailed breakdown of the overpayment and other notices don't. I would say that I don't know what the POM says specifically, but if Social Security told me no, I would probably go to a supervisor and ask. Um, and if they said no, and it was and it sort of was continuing to be an issue at the recon level, I would probably take it <laughs> to an. I don't know, Claire, would you take it to the ALJ level? I would go to a supervisor and ask for it. I know that this came up recently, kind of for you. I think that there should be a right to see that how this is calculated. I think it is like a, a due process issue. Yeah, I looked into this a little bit and there's a requirement to at least put the amount of what they actually paid you and what they should have paid you. And the rules are less clear about needing to show their work, like meaning to show their calculations. But um, apparently there's some good case law in our favor. So I, I would say fight it. Definitely. Yeah, I'd say my gut reaction to most things for Social Security is like research what the POMs say, fight it. I would say don't have a knee-jerk reaction quickly, which I'll explain in a minute about, um, about the ALJ level for if you get to the ALJ level on an overpayment or a non-disability issue. But um, Social Security is frequently wrong about what their rules say. So I know Claire and I are, are often asking each other if this has come up or uh, what our experience has been along with our other colleagues, because that's a common issue. So there is a system um, called iAppeals through Social Security. You can request this first level of appeal, the request for reconsideration online. If you generally, you can use this link or you can Google, I think file an appeal SSA. You're looking for a non-medical request, which is distinct from a medical cessation for um, benefits when social security finds that you're no longer disabled based on your medical condition. Anything else is a non-medical appeal. The good thing about submitting this online is that you can get a, a, a date timestamp showing that you submitted it. You get an email confirmation. You can save that to whatever your file system is, which I do because as we said, social security loses things or they claim they didn't receive things. So it's really, really great. We used to have to fax everything to them. And I think anyone who works with social security knows that they don't process faxes on time or sometimes at all or lose them. So whenever I have the option, I file the request online. Really the only thing you need to do to file it on behalf of a client is obviously their permission, but just the date of the notice um, is, is important to have. And so highly recommend doing that. We have seen a couple instances where for whatever reason, the system sometimes won't let you file it. It's not perfect like most government technology, 
Um, but I'd say it works probably like 95% of the time. Waivers. Waivers are probably the most common response that we have for overpayments because often there is a legit, legitimate um, overpayment because of all the reasons that someone can incur an overpayment. But that doesn't mean that your client has to pay it back because waivers exist and there's a lot of ways to get waivers. One question that was just raised is, do, you, do I file a, a request for recon before getting a 1696? Um, I would say this is this sort of, I think, gets into your practice and how your, your compliance works and ethics. Um, I do often assist clients in submitting a request for reconsideration, even when I'm not going to be fully representing them before Social Security because of people who might not have access to um, easy access to a computer where you do this online. I've never tried submitting the request for recon over the phone, um, like just using a smartphone. I'm curious how that works. But I, I have done this for clients without intending to submit a 1696 um, just to help them get it, get it in um, and to get the waiver um, process so that the withholding stops. Uh, if I'm going to continue to represent them, I make sure that I attach a 1696 or follow up and submit that as soon as possible because otherwise it's easy for us not to get information about the, um, the waiver or the processing of it going forward. Waivers. This is SSA form 632. As anyone who works with Social Security knows, every form has a number. And instead of alphabet soup, it's just numbers all over the place. The waiver form is 632. It is very, very long. Clients are often very overwhelmed by it, um, which is a big part of what we do is often helping clients sort of navigate that and understand it. When it's completed, save a copy. Always save copies with everything you submit to Social Security or make sure you know when you submitted it, and where it is, because they lose things. As we mentioned before, they have to stop um, withholding of any form or collection once this has been submitted. And if you disagree with the waiver, you can appeal. So the waiver sort of appeal is separate from the overpayment itself. This is saying, I agree with the fact that you denied my um, request for waiver. So same thing, appeal with a request for reconsideration, just a different issue. Um, something that doesn't come up, I'd say super frequently, although I think we've probably seen more this year than ever before because of the issues around erroneous overpayments related to pandemic related assistance. We had clients who were hit with large overpayments and then once social security excluded the pandemic related assistance, the overpayment was much smaller. If an original overpayment is less than $1,000, you can file an administrative waiver. If once you have an overpayment that is sort of corrected, it gets down to $1,000, it's not technically an administrative waiver, although there are some, um, I think, Social Security staff who would process it as such. But an original overpayment less than $1,000 is the perfect time to use the administrative waiver provision in the POMS. The citation is provided there. The reason it's great to do is because then you don't have to fill out Form 632, which is very, very long. And it's just an easier um, process. We have a sample letter that we're gonna that we provided in the materials of what we send to the local office when we're requesting administrative waiver. 
I've seen this come up most frequently when social security just erroneously overpays someone. I've had clients, especially either concurrent recipients or someone with maybe a slightly less common monthly benefit amount who randomly just got more than they should have one month, social security just messed up. And if it was less than $1,000 social, you can ask to say, this should all be waived because it was um, clearly social security's fault, which is the language from the palms is um, from the facts apparent on the face of the waiver or reconsideration request. There's no indication of fault on the part of the overpaid person. So helpful provision to use. Um, so a, another option in addition to requesting reconsideration to appeal the existence of the overpayment um, or the amount or requesting a waiver is to um, ask for a lower amount to be withheld. So if the request for reconsideration is denied and you can't get around the fact that there is this overpayment, if Social Security refuses to waive it and there's really just no other option. I've really seen this mainly with waivers or sorry, with overpayments where the claimant is at fault. And um, it's especially this happens, I think, with Title II benefits. So a little less on the SSI side, in my experience, or the person used to receive SSI and they're no longer receiving SSI and they do have income. Um, you can ask that they withhold less money than they are. So while you're currently receiving SSI, the max they can withhold is that 10%. It is still a lot. And by completing the form 634, very close to 632, um, you can ask that they withhold as little as $10. And to do that, you really just show that the amount that's being withheld um, is more than the person can cover. So it, the information on the form collects income, expenses, and just by showing that there's really not that um, capacity that the person has to pay the amount social security wants to wants them to pay. You cannot appeal a request for payment change, just to clarify. Um, they it's it's not an appealable decision as opposed to like a waiver or um, an overpayment. If social security denies your says that you can pay that amount back, Unfortunately, there's, um, there's really not much that you can do. Something important when helping someone fill out the 634 or, um, or advising them on how to do this is that it's important to, I mean, I wouldn't say that the numbers have to be like to the, you know, the 10th the of the cent, but it's important to really consider all the expenses someone has. And when you do have the actual amounts to use them, People often both overestimate how much things can cost, but forget expenses. And I find that people just in general forget all the things that they have to pay for. And Social Security doesn't necessarily expect that you're, you know, you're unable to buy clothing or, or shampoo and things to take care of yourself. They really are looking for all your reasonable expenses. So it's important to even just have a client maybe sit down and think through all the things that they need to cover in a month before filling this out. I usually advise people to write it down, email it to me, kind of sit with it so that we can really get accurate information. Because the second part of this is that if they say that their expenses exceed their income, social security will inquire how they are managing to get by. 
many, many people either receiving social security benefits or not are in debt because they are unable to make ends meet, which is a completely acceptable answer. But if that if that's true, um, it is important to note if they are getting help from friends or family and they're currently receiving SSI, again, that's an ISM flag. So it's really important to just address these questions and make sure that your client understands social security does need this information. I find that people are often upset because it is so incredibly intrusive. It's asking for so much that um, kind of just getting these forms completed can be um, very, very frustrating and time consuming. So we have an example that um, we could probably spend a lot of time on. I know we only have about 20 minutes left and I wanna make sure we have time to get through both of our examples, but there's sort of a lot of different answers or a lot of different parts of this question. And I want us to really just figure out what are the things to ask and what are the steps to take? So we're looking at um, an individual, Sandra Jones, whose son is receiving SSI. Ms. Jones works, she gets paid twice a month, and she always provides social security with her pay stubs. Even though she's doing this, she does receive a notice from social security, a notice of planned action is what it's called, um, that they are going to be um, decreasing her son's benefits next month because of the, um, her income. A couple days later, she receives a notice saying that she's been overpaid $3,800. And the notice says she needs to pay it back to them in four weeks. She comes to you with both of these notices. She's panicked and upset. What should you ask her and what should she do? Any and all thoughts are welcome. Oops. We had really great participation before. There's a little bit of silence now. So I'm going to remind everyone that there's no um, one right answer because there's multiple options and it really depends, which is the answer to legal questions that we all hate when people ask us and we say it depends. So we don't know here um, if the overpayment is correct or incorrect. We know that Ms. Jones is working, which as Claire mentioned, her income is deemed to her son, Daniel, and there are income limits for for SSI and the sort of calculation of how parental income is deemed to kids is not something that we can kind of simply address um, or easily cover, but it's important to know that her income does directly affect how, many how much she gets in benefits. So you know that she was reporting it, that's great. Let's ask her how she was reporting it. Does she know when, does she have any documentation, anything about that? If she doesn't, even just her statement about what she did will be helpful if we need to, to submit that for um, a waiver. I do think it's very important to note here that it's important to, um, to uh, what's some call it? It's very important to figure out with reporting of parental wages where Social Security did get the information if they have a notice and it shows how much they thought the parent's income was. Usually it'll say, you know, actual income versus uh, estimated income. I can't remember exactly what the two categories are, but they'll show what they used to calculate the benefits and now what they realized it correctly is. I had a client who is the inspiration for this example and the 
um, source of the information was actually incorrect. So very, very often this happens and it is correct because parental income can change drastically if you do not have a set salary that's stable every single month, if you work different hours or your job has any kind of fluctuation. Um, and the, the hospital system that my client's mom worked for had just instituted this new partnership with social security for reporting wages. And they were reporting her wages incorrectly. It was way more money than she was getting, which is to say that technology sometimes makes things easier and sometimes makes things harder. I'm seeing a lot of issues with data matching happening in the social security non-disability work I do. And at first when my client's mom said, no, no, I think that's wrong. Really, that, that sounds way too high. I was like, okay, like, well, maybe they made a mistake. But it turns out once she showed me her pay subs and we provided those to social security, they realized that they actually had made a mistake. So we have two, two helpful things in our chat. As Jacob said, tell them not to pay or borrow, never pay in four weeks, correct. Social security is pretty much never going to take action that quickly to garnish wages because they're just not that quick and that's not how treasure offset or wage garnishment works. The letters are very threatening. They obviously cause a lot of fear and stress. Um, I would feel the same way if I didn't know anything about social security and overpayments and I received this notice. Um, but there's other actions that they can take to protect themselves and address it. They should not be paying back the money um, right away ever, especially not borrowing. Georgina says, as for pay sub statements for CTC, tax returns, pandemic related income forward to social security along with an application for reconsideration. That is what I would do. That is a great answer. Um, the, the advent of the CTC is so, so great at reducing childhood poverty and stabilizing families and income. It does complicate things a little bit um, for social security income, but it's really important to be looking at all those things as we've covered um, here. So you forward for the reconsideration. If you request reconsideration within 10 days plus five for mailing, so 15 from the date of the notice, so by May 20th, your client would be able to receive the benefits at the same amount. There would be no reduction. Um, that is technically, um, there's statutory benefit continuation for medical cessation. This is a Goldberg-Kelly due process benefit continuation. And it only goes through the decision for request for reconsideration. That's a weird, funky difference. When you have a medical cessation case and you appeal for continuing benefits, you can get them through the um, ALJ level when it's a non-disability issue that actually only goes through the decision for request for reconsideration because they're different. Um, there's different bases for those continuing benefits, but very, very helpful. Um, if it turns out that the overpayment is correct, then we can file the, the waiver, which we talked about. Um, and I think it's helpful to always investigate to figure out what's going to be the best option. But it's good to know that there are both options and you can do both. Any other thoughts on this before we move to our next example? Okay. So next example, please. This is one that I kind of mentioned when we were going through the different bases for, um, for overpayments. This is an example where we have Doris Miller who's received SSI since she turned 65. 
She's now 89. When she applied for SSI, she told Social Security about her life insurance policy. Um, it does, it is a whole life policy. It has the cash surrender value, which is different than the face value. Um, but at the time she was under the $2,000 limit. On April 1st of 2021, Ms. Miller receives a notice that her SSI will be suspended the next month. She's over the resource limit. So she has will have no income. We should have also included here that she will get a, an overpayment notice and it could be a fairly significant overpayment if it turns out that social security thinks that she's been over the resource limit for a while. And when this happens to your 89 year old client, she and her family will be very, very, very panicked. Um, she fortunately comes to you right on time and you're able to either she does it for herself or you help her to file a request for reconsideration within 12 days of the date of the notice. What are you going to advise her on what to do next and what to expect? And what do you think you might have to do in this situation based on what we've said? I can tell you that one of the hints here is that social security might mess up. So what do you need to advise them of or what do you need to be ready to jump in and do? Megan Williams says, verify life insurance policy face and cash values. Always, always get more documentation. Very, very important. It's, um, I do not understand life insurance very well at all, but from doing non-disability cases, I do know that policies increase in a way that is <laughs> confusing to me over time, but that is often surprising to, um, to policy holders, how much um, cash surrender value of policy increases. And that for pretty much every client I've had who's been in this type of situation, they have their life insurance policy so that their families can cover their last expenses. And they do not view it as something that they can turn to cash, but because it can be, social security is very, um, I don't know if they're specifically on the lookout for these, but they're, it's a big deal. Um, Georgina says proof that she had informed them of her life insurance policy is always helpful. Yep. So the flags here that I had about how would you advise her and what to do next is that she filed the request for reconsideration, this first level appeal within 12 days of the date of notice, which means she should be eligible for Goldberg Gelly continuing benefits, which um, means that they should continue paying her SSI every month. This is her only income. She needs it to get by. It's very, very important that they not cut it off. When they suspend someone for being over the resource limit and then consequently have an overpayment, it means that they um, their benefits just stop altogether. So you're likely going to have to really make sure that this reconsideration was processed, that Social Security is ready to pay her benefits the next month. Um, I would say it's completely within your judgment call, scope of practice. However, you work with your local offices, knowing which office it is maybe might be more responsive or less. When this happened for me, it was with an office which is particularly behind on paperwork. So I tried to really get out in front of it and they still messed it up. Um, but I really wanted to make sure it didn't cause the client any more stress. 
And I did have to tell her, unfortunately, to expect an overpayment notice. It actually took about a month or two. They didn't send it out right away. And it was a very hefty overpayment notice, about $26,000, which caused the client a lot of distress. But I was glad that we were able to let her know it would um, it would probably be coming and what it meant and not to, to panic because we had a way to address it. And what would people say is the way to probably address that overpayment notice? So we had the request for reconsideration for the resource issue. Now, if she receives an overpayment notice, what is um, probably going to be our course of action? No takers. So I will um, suggest that while you have the option to file a request for reconsideration or a waiver request or both with an overpayment, um, based on the what I did here, which as Georgina suggested was to, and Megan suggested was to check the life insurance, life insurance policy and cash, cash value. Um, she was over the resource limit for a significant period of time. She didn't know she was. Um, it was a really good case for waiver in terms of her understanding of how she had reported everything, her understanding of how SSI worked, and the fact that the accumulation to her, that she wasn't really closely following this accumulation, um, which I think is a good argument, especially when it's an older adult. So we did file a request for waiver. It hasn't been decided yet, but we filed it, which means they can't withhold. So she's receiving a full check. If they deny it, as Sarah has just um, suggested in the chat, she is going to request a payment plan because she is an older adult who receives, um, technically this provision in the POMS is actually for Title II, but there is a provision if you're receiving Title II and the low income subsidy um, for Medicare, you can kind of automatically get a $10 repayment. She's a really good candidate, even though she's SSI only to get a $10 repayment plan. Um, she really doesn't have any wiggle room in her expenses. She's on a very fixed income. And I think that they would probably um, uh, probably grant it. The I got two questions about how we, how we address the actual resource issue. Um, she did, she actually cashed out this policy and put it in an irrevocable burial um, trust which is how, how we, we addressed that. Because what was really, really important to Ms. Miller was having money to cover her last expenses. And this needed to be dealt with really, really quickly. And that was what she felt most comfortable with. And social security had, um, you know, we, we kind of were able to do this before the, um, the request for reconsideration formal conference, which we kind of put off for a couple of months. So a sort of separate topic about resource issues, which I'm happy to discuss with anyone. We've, we have been doing a lot of issues with life insurance policies and SSI lately at CLS in our health and independence unit. So always happy to talk about those, but we have a couple minutes left for questions. So I wanna make sure if we have anything specifically about, um, about overpayments that we cover that. As Jacob mentioned, yes, you can sometimes borrow against a whole life policy, which will reduce um, the cash surrender value, but not the face value. 
So it's, it, there's a kind of a couple options of addressing this and it really depends on your client's financial situation in terms of where they are relevant to the um, income and resource limits if they have money that they wanna spend it on because you can quickly spend the money and have documentation and, and get around probably and, and get around issues related to that. Um, but it's just, it's something to work through with your client. And unfortunately you do wanna do it quickly because otherwise they can lose their only source of income. This is Kelly. If I could just interrupt for a second, I'm gonna launch the second of the CLE poll boxes right now. Um, this is for CLE credit. You should have um, completed the first question a while ago in the, um, session and please complete this one now to earn your CLE credits. And Kate, please feel free to continue. Thank you. No, that was perfect timing. I was pretty much done. I was just wondering if anyone had any other questions. Claire, if you have anything that you want to yeah. cover, if I missed anything while I was kind of rambling through my examples. No, I just wanted to flag that Sarah had asked a question. Um, do you always need to fill out the SSA 634 to get the $10 payment plan or a payment plan? So my understanding is that for somebody who does qualify for the special $10 repayment as a, um, I always forget if it is just, I think it is technically just Title II recipients who have the LIS, the low yeah, income subsidy. Yeah, she's asking about um, a child. A child, yeah, you do need to, so for both overpay, for waivers, and I th actually, I think maybe for the payment plan, once you say that you are currently receiving SSI, you shouldn't need to fill out the full one. If we are submitting a waiver for somebody who is currently receiving SSI, we only fill out sections one and two. And I know that that was directly told to, to us by somebody from one of the field offices and we've never had an issue. For the request for payment plan, I haven't filled out a lot for people who are not currently receiving SSI, or sorry, people who are currently receiving SSI as opposed to a waiver. Um, and as Jacob pointed out, it likely does vary from office to office. So I think you could, um, could check. Um, he also pointed out you can spend it over 36 months with no forms. Yeah. If it's an overpayment that can be recouped in 36 months um, at, an, at a rate that your client can pay, that is also an option. And that's in the palms. You don't need to fill out any forms. I would say if someone's currently receiving SSI, you should not need to fill out any part of the repayment form besides section one and two. And the same for the waiver. That's been my experience. If they're not receiving it, and you're not doing the 36 months or they're not a title II recipient or concurrent recipient with the LIS, I think you're going to have to provide documentation um, because that you don't have the presumption that they can't pay it back because they're receiving SSI. That would be my experience. That, and I just right. wanted to flag uh, two things. The first is um, a POMS provision that I meant to mention earlier is if someone has pandemic-related assistance in uh, their account, that is um, always assumed to be the last thing withdrawn from the account. So if they have commingled funds, some of, some of the funds are excluded as pandemic-related disaster assistance, some are not excluded, 
say they have $3,000 and uh, $1,000 of that is pandemic related assist disaster assistance and they withdraw $500. Social security is supposed to assume that they pull that from their funds, which are not excluded from resources, which are not classified as pandemic related assistance. So basically um, they get to keep the pandemic related disaster assistance for longer. And that POMS provision is SI01130.700. I'll pop that in the chat. And I also wanted to flag a Q&A about requesting benefit continuation, just to, just to flag for folks that who don't know that um, that is requested at the local field office. I wanted to make sure people saw I answered that question in writing. We have two minutes left. <laughs> if anybody has any other questions and our Contact information for both me and for Kate is up on the screen. I also, because I was curious and I always mess it up, I did look. It is Program Operations Manual System. That's what POM stands for. And if you're new to the world of Social Security, um, especially non-disability, just getting comfortable with the POMs and looking things up as one of your first reactions to a case or a question is really the best thing. You might not be able to find it because it is not super user-friendly. And I guess even just with Google, it's just the terms that are used are not always obvious since it's social security, but um, that was really how I've learned to um, learned a lot of this. A lot of it's from talking to people like Claire and Jacob and others who have been doing um, this type of work for a while, but the POMS is, is often your friend. And also social security forgets about POM provisions. It's really, really rewarding and satisfying when you get to be like, nope, the POM says this. And then they're like, oh, okay. Yeah. So the POMS actually can be really beneficial and your friend. Well, I know we're at time. Thank you all so much for your attention and for your questions and participation today. Um, please let us know if you run into issues with this pandemic related disaster assistance. We're very interested to see how this goes. Thanks, Claire. Thanks, Kate, so much for being with us. Um, just some reminders, please go into the Sketch conference app and check out all the different sessions we're offering. And I wanna um, just remind you that just because you put it on your private calendar in the Sketch app, that does not mean that you've registered for a session. You have to click on the session and click on the register here link and then fill out your information. So thanks for joining us and have a great day, everyone. Thanks all. Take care.